we're going to begin with this question today of who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Uh, it's a question that his disciples came and asked him, and Jesus' answer is really, is really surprising, and, uh, and it's really challenging in a lot of ways, and so that's where we're going to be going this morning. But before we jump into that, would you just join me in a word of prayer as we, as we ask God to, to open up his word to our hearts this morning? God, we love you, and we thank you for, for giving us your word. What an incredible gift it is. Uh, we don't worship the word, we worship you. We worship the speaker of the word, the author of the word. Um, but your word is an incredible gift and allows us to see into your heart that the creator God, the, the vast creator of the universe, uh, desires to be known and desires to be revealed through, uh, through the Bible. And uh, man, what an incredible gift it is that we have to open up today. So I pray that we would come with open hearts, with expectant hearts, uh, that we would, we would come and we would allow your word to shape and transform us, that we would resist the temptation to, to wrestle and, and twist your word to fit with our way of thinking, but rather we would do the hard work of wrestling our minds to conform them to your word. Holy Spirit, lead us and guide us in this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And so Matthew 18, uh, verse 1, it begins with this. It says, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus probably resisted all temptation to say, I am, next question, right? <laughs> he could have said that, but he didn't, right? Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I would love to tell you that, that weeks and months ago, when I knew I was going to be preaching on this passage, that I also planned to do child dedications on the same day, but it was completely a God-ordained thing. So if it has any value, if there's any value added by the fact that we got to watch child dedications today, it was completely an act of God and nothing of myself. Uh, but it's a great visual example, right, that Jesus said, hey, you want to see who's the greatest and, and, and appreciate culturally. They didn't worship children the way that we worship children today. Uh, we, we, children are the center of most of our universes, right? We structure our entire life around trying to, to provide for and care for and protect and elevate our children. At that culture and that time, that was not the case. That was not how they viewed children, right? The children were on the edges. They were, they were, they were, they were to be seen and not heard. They were to, off to the side, right? And so for Jesus to bring a child into the middle and say, hey, if you want to be the greatest, you need to become like this child. It was, it was, it was, it was an incredible thing for him to do. Now, his, his answer, it sounds a little bit like a rebuke, right? It's not Jesus saying like, hey, great question. I, I'm so glad you guys asked that. That's, that is what he, he says, hey, let me tell you something. You see this child? If you want to be great, become like this child. He corrected them. Why did he correct them? And I think, I think part of the reason that he corrected them are those last three letters on their statement. If they had said, Master, how can we be great for the kingdom of heaven? They might have got a different response. But what they said was, who is the greatest? And when you add EST, when you say, who is the greatest, suddenly you enter this idea of comparison, right? Suddenly now we're talking about, of all the human beings, of all the people who will be in your kingdom, who is the greatest person? Which person is better than all of the other people? And essentially what Jesus says is, hey, you're thinking about this all wrong. <laughs> You've got the wrong mindset. The mindset of comparison is not the mindset of the kingdom of heaven. 
Now, imagine if I were to come up here and say, hey, I want Riverside to be a great church. I want it to be a church where people hear the gospel, they respond to the gospel, that they're, they're trained into being disciples, that they go out into ministry of the world. That's a great thing. We should celebrate that, right? We want to be a great church. On the other hand, if I say, I want to be the greatest church in Montgomery County. I want to be the greatest church in Philadelphia. That's not a godly thing, right? <laughs> because suddenly what we're doing, instead of looking to say, hey, what does God want us to do? What does God call us to do? We start to say, well, what is everybody else doing? And where do we rank on the pecking order? And where can we celebrate where they're lesser so that we can feel like we're greater? And that's not how God wants us to exist as a church or as individuals. We get this, this false sort of inflated sense of our value that comes from looking at people that are lesser, or we get this false sense of, of devalued worth because we're looking at people that we perceive to be greater. And that's not how God wants us to live and to function. Uh, essentially, they're saying, of all the people who've ever lived, where do we fall in the rankings? Are we the top 12? Are we at the peak? Uh, uh, you know, think about all-time greatest. This is like sports talk radio all week long. This is all they talk about, right? Like, who's the greatest? Two minutes left in the fourth quarter of the Super Bowl. Who do you want to lead your comeback? Joe Montana or Nick Foles? We're taking your calls, right? And they, they want to know, like, uh, and, and crazy this week, but some people said they'd rather have Nick Foles than Tom Brady or Joe Montana. So, um, I think they're crazy, but, uh, but I hope that Nick proves me wrong again today, right? Um, but we, we always want to do that. And so they say, hey, Jesus, a couple of weeks ago, you, kind of, you, you said that John the Baptist is the greatest of all time. I don't know that I see it, but I'm going to trust your judgment because you're Jesus, right? So, okay, we'll put him in number one, and maybe we'll put Elijah and, and Moses and, and King David. And way down here at the bottom, we have, we have Herod who tried to kill all the, the kids when they were little, and Nebuchadnezzar, and like all these, and, and the, you know, there's the whole listing of humanity, and, and somewhere above the midpoint is where I fall. And no matter who you are, when you do those rankings, you pretty much always put yourself somewhere above the midpoint, right? Like, I don't know the world rankings, but I know that I'm in the top half. I'm, I'm one of the good ones, right? I'm, I'm one of the better half. And uh, that's the way that our natural, our heart inclines that way. That, that's the way, way we think. We want to, we feel better because of the people that we think that we're better than. Jesus says, in my kingdom, that's not the way that it works. That's not how things are measured in my kingdom, Think about this conflicting uh, set of realities. For, for the vast majority of us, I, I, I would dare say all, but some people might argue with me, but we live in what would be considered a dream world for most people around the world and historically throughout time. As, as Americans living in 2019, right, we have warmth, we have clothing, we have easy access to food, most of us got up this morning and just turned a knob and hot water came out of, a, <laughs> out of, out of, out of something, unless you didn't get a shower this morning, right? Uh, you can go into your kitchen and you push a button and coffee comes out, right? We are living the dream by, by most people's standards. Historically throughout the world, you know, we didn't have to get up and go milk the cows this morning. We didn't have to go get the eggs. Uh, we, it was all available for us. And yet, most of us, many of us, are unsatisfied in our situation in life. We woke up this morning feeling like, ah, I, I'm not happy. I'm not happy with what I have. What I have is not enough. It's not sufficient. Why is that? How can we be objectively at the same time living the dream and dissatisfied with our situation? Well, the reason is because of comparison, right? 
If you, uh, you, you live in America, you're in the top, top percent of wealthy people in the entire world. But if you're one of the poorer people in one of the richest company, countries, you feel like you don't have enough. And so it leads to a spirit of ingratitude. And, and social media does not help with this, right? Um, and, it's, and it's easy as a pastor. I could go on like the 10-minute pastoral rant on social media, right? Which I'm going to resist the temptation to do. But, but if you're comparing your life to somebody else's highlight reel, you're not, you're not experiencing reality. And so I'm not, I'm not saying that we should all go and like put our worst moments out there on social media. I'm not going to invite you guys to come look in my garage. And, and, and if you did, you would say, okay, now I know where all the... the broken toys from Toys R Us, like what they did when they shut it down, they must have shoved them all into this space here, right? Like it's, it's embarrassing. I don't want you to see it and I'm not going to show it to you. Um, I'm, not, I'm not saying that we should do that and live that way. I'm just saying when you go on social media, recognize that you're seeing the best of the best. Somebody had a horrible day, everything went wrong, their hair looked bad, they might have, they might have had a horrible interaction with their, their, their boss at work, but they had a, uh, the perfect angle on their picture of ramen noodles that they took and they had for dinner, and, and suddenly it looks like they're living the dream. And you're like, wow, if only I had that, then my life would be satisfied. Comparison is it's dangerous in a number, in a number of ways, and, and, and part of it is that... Um, it's all about being a big fish in a small pond. Let me, let me impress you guys for a minute. Um, in 1993, I was the greatest grocery beggar at Nell's Surefine Market in South Hanover, Pennsylvania. Champion, right? I mean, they actually had a contest, and I won. You've been there. Yeah, you know. Ashley knows what I'm talking about. But sadly, when I went to the York Fair, and they had the, the beggar contest for the whole county, I didn't even make it out of the opening round, right? So, so we find ways by comparison to make ourselves feel good because we just kind of, we, set, we stack the deck in our favor. We find a small enough pond where we can feel like a big fish. Or we find some way to become a bigger fish in the pond that we're in. Um, but the problem with this is it, it leads us to celebrate other people's failures, right? You see somebody else fall down and you're, you're upset, but, but secretly you're like, yes. You see the ball hit the post and then hit the other post and then bounce out. <laughs> and joy wells up in your heart, right? Because we live by comparison. Jesus says the comparison is not the measurement of the kingdom. And it's over and over again in the, in the Bible. We're, we see it all over the place. Jesus tells a parable about a bunch of people that were hired to do work in a field. He goes out, he sends, he says, hey, some people first thing in the morning, hey, I'll send you out in the field. I'm going to pay you this much. Like, great, we'll do it. They go out and do it. Throughout the day at lunchtime, he sends some more out, sends some more out. An hour before quitting time, he sends some people out to work. When it comes time to pay him, he takes, he goes to the ones that only worked one hour first and he gives them what he had promised the first people. So the first people are like, whoa, they got that for working an hour. I can't wait to see what we get for working all day. And when he comes to them, he gives them exactly what he promised he would give them. And they're mad. They're angry. And he says, why are you upset? <laughs> we agreed. If I chose to be generous to them, if I chose to extend uh, mercy, grace to them, what is that to you? I, I was fair to you. The story of the, the prodigal son involves a lot about comparison, right? Comparison is a deadly trap. Do you wrestle with comparison? We all do. We all do. How much of your identity, if I, was asked you, if I were to ask you, hey, how's your life going? What do you think about yourself? What do you think about your self-worth? How happy are you with your place in your life? How much of that is based on comparison to other people? A very successful sibling, 
Somebody you graduated with who's doing way better than you. Somebody at work who got the promotion that they didn't deserve, that you deserved. How much of your identity is tied up in your comparison to other people? Uh, Jesus says it shouldn't be at all, right? He says that our identity shouldn't be tied up in that. It's, it's just the wrong, the wrong measure. Maybe that's a word for you this morning. Maybe, maybe God's calling you to reset the way that you think in a kingdom mindset and stop comparing yourself to other people. You're running a race against yourself. You want to be the greatest you that you can be. And that's all that God measures you against. That's all that he measures you against. Jesus says something incredibly surprising. He says, they say, who's the greatest? He says, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I'm not talking about greatest. I'm talking about are you in? (laughs) By your measure, by your accomplishments, by your success, you may think you're near the top, but, but you need to ask yourself, have I even entered in yet? And he says two words. He says, turn and become. Right? It begins with, with, with turn. It means that, 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 that to become a, a follower of Christ, to become great in the kingdom, is not merging all your worldly successes with Jesus, and suddenly the two of you together can reach new heights. That's not a picture of, of salvation. That's not a picture of a life with Jesus. Paul famously said, hey, I was, you want a resume? I was, I was a, a Pharisee of Pharisees. I, I trained under Gamaliel, one of the greatest teachers uh, in, in my time. I, uh, I was zealous for the Lord. I went from town to town rounding up Christians, and, and, and I, over, uh, I watched over the coats while they stoned them to death. And, and I did all these things, and it was rubbish. It was worthless. It was nothing. It was actually driving me further away from God, everything that I thought that I accomplished. And it wasn't until I turned, I repented of all of that, and I became like a child that I entered in. Have you done that? Have you turned from everything that you thought brought value and worth in your life? And have you become like a child? Have you become humble? Have you become dependent on God? Have you entered into the kingdom? He says, if you've done that, that's how you become great in the kingdom. If Jesus wanted to use a biblical measure, he could, have, he could have quoted Psalm 24, right? Psalm 24 says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He could have looked at him and said, Hey, do you have, do you have clean hands? You want to be great? Do you have a pure heart? Remember my sermon from a couple weeks ago? <laughs> I said, if you look with lust on a woman, you have committed adultery in your heart. Do you, have, do you have clean hands and a pure heart? If you shake your fist at your brother in anger, that you've committed a murder in your heart, is your heart pure? Is your heart clean? He asked them that. Or he could have asked them that. He could ask us that, the same question. That, um, to, it's foolishness to think that somehow our resume is so good that we are going to be at the top of Jesus' draft board uh, coming out of the NFL combine, right? <laughs> so coming out and saying, like, wow, look at the measurables on, on, on Ezra, man. He, he can teach and he can speak and he can jump, like, two feet, which is okay. And, uh, <laughs> right? 
God didn't look at my resume. He didn't look at like all my measurable stats coming out of the combine and say, I want to draft that guy. He's worthy. None of us. It's foolishness to think that, that we were so, so incredibly gifted that God said, man, I really have to have them for our team. He looked at us when we were dead in our sins. He looked at us when, when, when all, of our, all of our earthly accomplishments were nothing, and he said, I love them. I love you, and I want you to be with me not because of your greatness, but because of my great love. I love you, and I want you to be with me. I care deeply for you. Turn and become. That's how we answer. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one enters but me, by me, right? He talks about the narrow gate. Unless we turn and become like children, we won't enter into the kingdom of heaven. And he talks about this quality of, of humility, he points out there's a lot of qualities we can think about with children, right? Uh, 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 children are innocent. Uh, children are whiny. <laughs> children can be very selfish. <laughs> children can be very ignorant, right? There's good and bad qualities, but Jesus points to his humility. He says, unless you enter with humility, like, like one of these children, uh, that children don't think that they know how to do everything, and not at least until they get to be a preteen, right? Then they start to, <laughs> start to think that they know how to do it all, right? But, but young children are very teachable, you can walk up to them and say, hey, let me show you how to do that. And they're like, okay, right? They're humble. They understand that they, don't, they, they wouldn't claim to be the greatest. They, they, they don't know. And tied to that humility is a dependence. The humility of a child consists of childlike trust, vulnerability, and the inability to advance his or her own calls apart from the help, direction, and resources of a parent. That children are dependent, and that's a good quality in the kingdom. Uh, I, I had the privilege to, uh, in two different discipling groups that I met with this week. This question kind of came up of like, "Hey, how much? Are there things that I shouldn't pray for? Is there things that's just like, man, I know God's got bigger fish to fry. Like, I don't want to trouble Him with this. I feel like I'm I'm dishonoring Him by praying over this little thing." And what the Bible says is, you should bring it all before Him. There's nothing so small. God wants a relationship with you. He wants you to continually come to him. And, and, and that's what Jesus did, right? Jesus would spend an entire day casting out demons, healing people, doing amazing things that you and I could only dream of. And the next day, he would get up and he would go spend time with the Father and say, Father, that's what I did yesterday. What do you want me to do today? Sometimes he would say, do more of the same. Sometimes he would say, I want you to go into the next town. And the disciples would come and say, hey, they're lining up already, Jesus. We got them in nice orderly cues by, by disease and deficiency, and we're ready for you to come home. And Jesus is like, nope, the Father told me to move on to the next place, right? Jesus, Jesus knew, I mean, healing, casting out demons, those are good things, but Jesus was continually dependent. Paul Miller talks about it this way in, uh, in his Person of Jesus seminar. He talks about, hey, imagine you were sitting in a restaurant, and you heard somebody at the table next to you talking to the, someone and saying, yeah, I don't do anything unless my dad, you know, 30-year-old man, I don't do anything unless my dad tells me to. I ask him about everything, and I only do what he tells me to do, and I only say what he tells me to say, and I don't do anything without checking in with him. You'd be like, man, is this, is this a hit, one of those hidden camera shows? Like, what would you do, right? Is, is that guy going to come out of the back? Like, do I need to intervene with this guy and tell him how codependent he is and he needs to grow some autonomy, right? In, in a creature-creature relationship, parent-child, husband-wife, right, uh, co-workers, the, the, some level of autonomy is good. It's healthy. It's necessary. But in the creator-creature relationship, it's completely different. God wants us to be dependent on him like a child. 
And here's the crazy thing. Our, our son, uh, Edwin, is, is almost nine months old, and, uh, and he's, he's doing great, except he doesn't know how to sleep through the night, right? And so sometimes he wakes up in the middle of the night, and he is dependent on my wife. And when, when she gets up, most of the time the thought in her heart is, man, I love this. I'm so glad I had a son. I'm so grateful, God, for this gift. Let me go and see what he needs because he is so dependent on me. But every once in a while in her heart, she's like, oh, could this kid just learn to sleep so I could just get a few out, right? Like, God is never like that. God is never like, oh, when are they going to learn to be dependent, independent? When are they going to just learn to depend on themselves? Uh, If I teach you something, I'm going to show you how to do it so you never have to ask me again, right? (laughs) Let me show you this. Pay attention. Listen. And then I'll never have to show you again. You do it, and I'll go on. A a creature-creature relationship, that's how it works. But the creator-creature relationship is different. God wants me to ask him every single time. Hey, I've done this a hundred times, but he wants me to ask him again. God, how do you want me to do it? What do you want it to look like? Show me how how to do this. Not just what to do, but how to do it. God, open my eyes to see the way that you want me to do it. He wants us to be dependent on him like a child. That's, That's a picture of what it looks like to live in the kingdom. Well, in addition to to resetting their understanding of the kingdom, Jesus has a couple other things to say about what it means to be the greatest. And it picks up in verse 5. If you look at Matthew 18, 5, it says, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptation to sin, for it is necessary that temptation comes, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Essentially what he says is this. If you want to be the greatest, there's an incredible burden that comes with that. There's a risk that comes with that, with seeking to be the greatest. Because what does the greatest say? The greatest, well, someone who seeks to be the greatest says, I have knowledge. I have wisdom. Do what I say. Do what I do. Follow my example. And if you're going to take that mantle upon yourself, you better make sure that you're not leading anyone into sin. You better make sure that you're not leading people astray because if you do, God takes sin very seriously. It says in Scripture that those who uh, to preach it, not, not many should seek to be preachers and teachers and, and, and leaders in the church because they're held to a higher account. And I'm painfully aware of that every time I get up here to speak and to share with you. I recognize that I'm accountable to God for the things that I share with you from his word. And if I lead you astray and tell you things that are not true of God, that I'm accountable for that. Man, that's, that, that's a serious thing. And so if you want to know that, that, that you're leading people in the path of God, man, you have to take that with extreme seriousness. And he talks more about the, the seriousness of sin. He says, hey, if your hand is causing you to sin, cut it off. If, you, if your eye is causing you to sin, pluck it out. Now, I'm not encouraging anyone to go home and cut your hand off, Right? Did you guys watch Little House on the Prairie back in the day? Anybody? Little House? Anybody? All right, we got some good Little House people in here, right? 
this one really crazy episode where Charles went away and he was uh, he was doing some stuff in town or whatever, and and the wife was was at home and she uh, she got like gangrene or something and she had this fever and I just remember the the Bible uh, it, the camera zoomed in on this passage in the Bible where it said cut it off and she's there contemplating like man TV was messed up back in the day right <laughs> this is like a PG rated show right and this girl you know what God's saying is sin is serious. Don't play with it. Do you have relationships where you're saying like, well, yeah, hey, you know, I'm, I, I want to be a Christian. I want to I influence this, this person. But the reality is that when you get together, it just leads you into sin. That when you get together, you're the one who's altering and bending your moral compass. You're the one who's, who's letting down what you would naturally want to do just so that you can fit in. Those sort of relationships are, are not good. And God's saying, hey, if you have to, you need to cut it off. If it's leading you to sin, you need to break it. If you can't handle having the full cable package and your eyes are wandering to things that you shouldn't be watching, cut it off, right? If you can't handle having internet access, <laughs> cut off the internet access, right? Because it, it, it's better to go through life without the internet than to be led into sin. Man, is God calling you today to think about there's something you need to cut off in your life? doesn't mean it's a wicked, evil, horrible thing. The internet's not horrible in and of itself. It's a tool. It can be used for good. It can be used for evil. And, and, and I'm just picking on a few things. You know what it is. You know what the idols of your heart are. You know the things that, that you're continually, uh, uh, that God brings to mind in moments when, you, when you're seeking him. And the question is, what are you going to love more? I've shared this example before. It's a silly example, right? But, but when I was in college, God convicted me that there, there was a band that I loved, and they came out with a new album. And, um, and when I listened to it, it's just there was three or four songs that were just like anti-God, just for no good reason, just kind of throwing these things. And I, man, I wrestled with it, and I really felt like God saying to me, like, hey, like, what do you love more? You know? Are you willing to let this go? You're convicted. Are you willing to go? And so I did. I, I, I got rid of it. Now, I'm not going to tell all of you to get rid of, of, of that CD because that CD is wicked and evil. God convicted my heart that I, it wasn't, I had a choice to make. And there's going to be moments in your life where he does the same for you. He's going to convict you. Hey, what do I love more? Do I love this thing or do I love him? And what you do in those moments will have a great impact on, on the nearness of your walk with God and maybe even possibly... Um, your, your ability to, to hear from him or, or to do the things that he's calling you to do. He says, if you want to be the greatest, you need to take sin seriously. And he concludes in verse 10 by saying one more thing that's, that's just as shocking but so encouraging. Look at what it says in verse 10. It says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. The other thing that Jesus is saying is you don't understand the depth of the love of God. If you want to rank the kingdom as, as far as the greatest and the least, then you don't understand how much God loves those that you would call least. <laughs> the ones that you would put at the bottom of your list, the ones that you would put on the outskirts of heaven are the ones that God loves desperately and deeply. 
says in there that it's not the will of my father that any should perish. And so some would twist this verse and say, okay, well, if it's not God's will that anyone would perish, and God always gets his way, God always gets his will, therefore there must be no hell. No one must go to hell. Everyone must receive eternal life. But Jesus just a few verses ago said, hey, <laughs> it's better to go through life without a hand or an eye than to be thrown into the, to the fires of hell. Hell is a reality that Jesus talks about often. What, what he's saying here is not that, that God is, is going to accomplish his will. and not somebody. What he's saying is that it's never God's will that anyone chooses to rebel and reject him. There's no one that chooses sin and God's like, oh, good. <laughs> I knew it. I was just trying to thin out the herd. Let's get rid of the, the dead weight here. No. He doesn't. He loves us deeply. He loves the one sheep that strays when the 99 stay where they're supposed to stay, and he goes out. And so maybe you're here this morning, and you're like, man, I feel like maybe I'm that one. I feel like I've been the lost sheep. I feel like I'm the one who strayed, and I'm just not sure that God wants me back anymore. Man, look at what Jesus says here. Believe the words of Jesus. Jesus says he loves the one. He pursues it. He goes and finds it, and then he celebrates it. He wants you in relationship with him. He doesn't want you to fail. He wants you to draw near to him. He loves you incredibly, deeply, desperately. Now think about what this means for the way that we interact with one another. Instead of rating each other and comparing and, and listing, what if we looked at each other through the eyes of God? Wow, God loves that person who is completely different than me, who is completely other than me. Imagine what this, thinks, well, imagine what this means about our, our, our discrimination, right? How crazy it is to think that people would say, well, hey, because of the color of my skin, I'm, on this, I'm, I'm up here on the list, and they're down there. Because of my gender, I'm up here, and, and they're down there. Look at the way that these divisions completely go against the kingdom of heaven. Man. Don't despise what God treasures. And uh, Dave sent me an article this week. It talked about, you know, in this, in this, in this culture, in this day and age, it's easy to just uh, to call out the person. Oh, that person's racist. Let's, let's all condemn them and put them down and criticize them. And that's easy to do. But, but what does it look like to really care enough about it to say, hey, I want to change the structures. I want to change the society. I want to do the hard work of, of, of investing into creating the unity that's, that's, that's a picture of the kingdom here and now. What would it look like for us as a church to really invest in, hey, we want people to love Jesus, and, and we know that they're going to see that when we can come together across racial, ethnic, age, gender divides, and we can come together united in the love of Jesus. What picture does that present to our world? That's a picture of the kingdom. And that's what Jesus is going to be doing over the next several weeks. He's going to show us pictures of what the kingdom like, looks like. And I promise you, the kingdom is so much better than our little K kingdom that we've created here. <laughs> Jesus' kingdom is infinitely better, but it is infinitely different. And the more that we orient our heart, each week we're going to be challenged with things of like, hey, I naturally think and feel this way, but Jesus, you're saying to do this. And the more that we go the way that Jesus is calling us, the more that our heart becomes kingdom territory the more that the kingdom comes to reside in us and that we're in a position to show others what the love of Jesus looks like. Will you join me in prayer?